And we'll turn to Romans chapter 16 this morning. We'll read verses 21 through the end of the letter. This is our last message from Paul's letter to the Romans. We've, we've been in Romans for just over two years now, I think it is. And by the grace of God, we've persevered and we come to its end today. Beginning at verse 21, Timothy, my fellow worker, and Lucius, Jason, and Sosipater, my countrymen, <clears throat> greet you. I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, my host, and the host of the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the treasurer of the city, greets you. And Quartus, a brother. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery kept since the kept secret since the world began, but now made manifest and by the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations according to the commandment of the everlasting God for obedience to the faith, to God alone wise be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see the wonderful things in your law and in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray for your Spirit's blessing upon the reading and preaching of your word this morning. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> you know, the history of the nations is in fact a history of conflict. Uh, one Christian writer decades ago uh, noted that uh, at the beginning, after God created man, he told the man to have dominion over all the earth. But that after the fall, instead of taking dominion over the earth, man began to take, or to try and take, dominion over other men. And so we see that beginning with Cain and Abel. And uh, whether we look to the East, the Middle East, or the West, that is one way to describe the history of the nations, a nation's uh, a history of conflict or war between the nations. And uh, as we look at the past century, uh, some of that was uh, nearly put to an end, or the pause button was hit with World War II, but uh, things bubble up here and there. And percolate, and we sometimes wonder where are we headed when it comes to the nations and to what is going on in the world today. Now, as far as we are concerned, uh, Christians have hope. And so when we think about conflict, when we look out into the world and we see how it's changed just in the past year and a half, uh, we should have hope among all things, and among all people. And what is the hope for the nations? What is the one hope for the nations? It's in our text for this morning. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's Christ Himself who is the only hope for the nations. And I think we'll see that as we work through the text this morning. And as we do so, as we look at verses 21 
through 27, I want us to consider that it is the gospel of Jesus Christ that is the only hope for the nations, for all men everywhere at all times. And we see this because of the gospel. And so first of all, we see this because of the gospel and its fellowship. That's there in verses 21 through 24. Again, Paul is giving these greetings as he already has in the letter. And in these greetings, we see various aspects of how the gospel works itself out in the life of the church. And it brings people together who may not otherwise come together, who may have been enemies at one point, but now are sons and daughters of the living God, brothers and sisters in Christ, and they love one another. And so this really is an antithesis to the world's fellowship and unity. People of the world may have fellowship, they may have unity and things that bring them together. After all, we are all the image bearers of God, we have that in common. Certain people may come from a particular nation and that can bring them together. Maybe it's a certain sorority or whatever else it is. A government program perhaps can bring certain people together. But nothing brings people together as closely and indestructibly as the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, Paul mentions Timothy as fellow worker there in verse 21. We've learned about him before. Uh, Timothy's father probably was not a Christian. His mother was and his grandmother was. And so Paul took Timothy under his wing and uh, he calls him elsewhere his son in the faith. He discipled Timothy. Timothy became a pastor and a preacher of the gospel. Then he mentions Lucius, Jason, and Sosipater, his countrymen, and that they greet the saints there at Rome. And so these are his fellow ethnic Jewish brethren. And so they come together. They have the common bond of peace and the gospel of Jesus Christ as well. His kinsmen. And then there's a cameo appearance in verse 22. Perhaps it's surprising as you read the letter. It says, I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle. But you say, but this is from Paul. Well, we know elsewhere that Paul had a thorn in the flesh. That Paul had poor eyesight, and some of his letters, he says, see, I have signed my name with my own hand. But Paul evidently had a secretary to um, write his letters as he dictated them to him. And this was Tertius, in this instance, who wrote and recorded Paul's letter to these Christians at Rome. And he says, I greet you in the Lord. So as a fellow brother in Christ, I send my greetings to you. I haven't met you. I love you. I'm praying for you. And by the way, I'm the one who gets to write this letter that is being sent to you and read in your midst, even in the worship services. And then in verse 4, or rather verse 23, we learn of Gaius. He was at Corinth, probably, and participated in the ministry there. Paul says that Gaius was his host and the host of the whole church, and that he greets them. And so here we're reminded again of Christian hospitality. That Gaius, because the Lord received him, Gaius opened his heart and his home to other Christians. In fact, it could have been that the church at Corinth 
worship in his home. And so let's just stop and see here and, and note uh, that uh, Christian hospitality is a duty of Christians. We are called to show hospitality. And if Christians are going to show hospitality, on the flip side of that, if we are shown hospitality, we need to be good guests. And exercise Christian love, not behaving rudely. Being on time and all of the things that make up being a good guest. And then he mentions Erastus, the treasurer of the city. Uh, This is a man of high importance uh, in that area where he resided. He held a high place in the community. And so the Christian faith brings slaves and masters together as brother and sister. It brings high political figures and the subjects of those political figures together as brother and sister in Christ. And then if you have the New King James... Uh, you'll have verse 24. If you don't have the New King James, but have a good translation, it will at least let you know that verse 24 is there. It says, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. This is a benediction. The apostles end their letters in this way. You know, in the Old Testament, number 6, there was the Aaronic benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make His face to shine upon you be gracious to you and give you peace. And God instructed the priest to do that to the people of Israel, God's people, to put God's name upon them. This was the continuing practice of our Lord Jesus Christ in the last chapter of Luke's, who raised His hands and blessed His disciples. And so that's why we pronounce a benediction at the end of our service. And the apostles did this as well. Well, if you don't have verse 24 there, if it's in brackets, it's called a textual variant. If you look back at verse 20, guess what Paul said there? The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. And so the older manuscripts don't have verse 24. Some think maybe that a scribe repeated it by accident, or Paul did say that, in fact, and other Greek manuscripts don't habit. I don't want to get off in the weeds too far, but uh, there are different families of Greek manuscripts, okay, of the New Testament. And don't let this throw you for a loop, because unbelievers will try to attack God's Word and say, look, there's an error. Well, first of all, this doesn't change the doctrine. Second, we understand that copies of Greek manuscripts may have such instances in them. Third, we have more textual integrity, and copies of the New Testament than we have of Plato's writings himself. So if you're going to attack the Word of God based on something like this, then you need to say Plato didn't exist and his writings are all erroneous and he didn't write them and all of that. So I just want to put you at ease because we do have a textual variant there and it is a blessing, a benediction there in verse 24. And so as we think about The way the gospel unites people. What is it that brings this blessing? It is Christ Himself. It is His Spirit. The bond of peace. The bond of love and perfection as Paul says in Colossians. And so the gospel brings true unity. Now we may have disagreement this side of heaven. 
but Christ Himself has provided uh, the method by which we may be reconciled to one another and offer and extend and grant true forgiveness. Ephesians 4.32 As God in Christ has forgiven you, forgive one another. We didn't deserve it. And when God forgave us, He took our sins and He remembers them no more. And so we don't hold a grudge. We forgive completely and forever. And so we see the Gospel and its fellowship. And so in that regard, this is the only hope of the nations. Men may force other men to unite together under a certain political system. There may be external commonalities and so forth. But it is the gospel that truly unites men together under the head of Christ Jesus and makes them members of the same family. But more than that, we see the gospel's power. We see the power of the gospel to bring unity and what it is that the gospel itself does. And so that's there, beginning of verse 25. He says, Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. And so he says, now to him who is able, that word able, Paul has used elsewhere, speaking of the gospel itself in chapter 1, saying that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. It is the dunamite. We could translate it today, the dynamite. Now this is before dynamite existed, but it's powerful stuff, we could say. And uh, it is the gospel that is the power of God, Romans 1.16, to salvation for everyone who believes. And here in our text, he says in verse 25, it is God who is able to establish you according to my gospel. And so when he says that God is able, he's more than able to establish these Christians and all Christians, us today even, It is God who is able to strengthen, to establish, to make more firm. And why would he be concerned about this? Well, remember what we saw last time. He does give them the warning in verse 17 of the same chapter. He warns them of those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned and avoid them. So there will be false teachers to come into the church to draw God's people away in order that they might build their own kingdoms, get their own book deals, and if you're an author, whatever, that doesn't mean you're a false teacher, but you know what I'm saying. As Paul says here, their God is their belly, and uh, they serve themselves, not the Lord Jesus Christ. And they come with smooth words and flattering speech. And so here Paul is saying, God is able, more than able, who will do it? He will establish you. He will make you to stand and to stand firm. And thus no good from bad, evil from good, truth from error, and so on. The Apostle Paul was very concerned that all Christians everywhere would be so established. Um, He would go out and preach the gospel as an evangelist, as an apostle, and uh, gather God's people and plant churches Then we go into the next city, and uh, he would put pastors uh, in his place at those churches. He would move on from city to city, and uh, eventually he would circle back and come and check on these churches. 
to see that they were established, to see what progress they had made. And he wrote to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 3.12. He said, May the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all, just as we do to you, so that He may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all His saints. Remember in Thessalonians, or in Thessalonica, there were those who had said that Christ had already come. And so they were thinking, well, did we miss the second coming? And so Paul had to uh, expose that error and correct it. And so he says in 2 Thessalonians 3, 1, Finally, my brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified just as it is with you, and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men. For not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful who will establish you and guard you from the evil one. So Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, and therefore Christ Himself through Paul, says here He wants us to be established, to stand firm, knowing truth from error, so that we are not carried about by every wind of doctrine, as it says. And uh, remember, Paul wanted to visit these Christians at Rome in chapter 1, at verse 11. He gives one of the reasons as to why he wants to come see them. He says in chapter 1, verse 11, For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift. Why? So that you may be established. And so that's one of the ways we are established. We have spiritual gifts given to us by the Spirit. We exercise those. We serve one another with them. We build each other up in the faith. But also, Paul says here that God Himself, through various means, is able to establish the Christian. And so how is it then that God does this? How does He establish His people according to what He writes here? Well, he says there, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, in accordance with, corresponding to the gospel that Paul preached. You know, sometimes we talk about bookends. Uh, The Bible has these bookends. It starts in the garden in Genesis. And guess where it ends in Revelation? Paradise restored. Well, in Paul's letter... To the Romans, uh, the Christians at Rome, he begins with the bookend. And it is the gospel of Jesus Christ. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. And guess where he ends his letter to the Romans? With the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says, according to my gospel, verse 25, and the preaching of Jesus Christ. So in other words, the God who is more than able to establish His church, the recipients of Paul's letter here, the Romans, has chosen to establish them and us today through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we need to talk about preaching just for a second. Because preaching today has hit hard times. The pulpit has been replaced by a table or a stool. Preaching has been replaced by PowerPoint and conversations. Preaching has lost its authority in the name of Christ. It's now a mere suggestion 
or a conversation in a postmodern age. And that is sad. What is preaching? Preaching, as we've already seen in Romans chapter 10, is the official proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Word of God. Remember what he says in chapter 10. He talks about the necessity of the gospel. He says in verse 14, How shall they believe in Him whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without what? A preacher. And remember, we saw that what Paul is saying there, as a preacher, a man of God, is called by the church of God, recognized and sent out to preach the gospel, Christ Himself, by His Spirit, preaches and speaks through that man. So that when the Word of God is preached in that way, we hear Christ. Christ says, My sheep hear My voice. It's through preaching. Preaching is also the authoritative explanation and application of the Word of God. Nehemiah 8. They explained the Word. They gave the sense. And then they made application. Nehemiah chapter 8. You know, biblical preaching basically answers three questions. What does the Bible say? What does the Bible mean by what it says? And how does it apply to my life? That's biblical preaching. And we need to recognize that today. Um, This is how they would be established in their faith, especially. Now we emphasize as well the reading of the Word of God, the means of grace, the fellowship of the saints, all of these things. But the pinnacle even of our worship services is the public preaching of the Word of God. And So let me make three uh, marks about preaching since we see this right here. Its focal point, biblical preaching, should be Jesus Christ. He says His gospel, the preaching of Jesus Christ. Elsewhere He says, I determined to know nothing among you but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Not only the person of Jesus, but the work of Jesus. Jesus is not only our King, He's not only our prophet, He is our priest. And uh, we need to be careful not to so emphasize one of His offices to the exclusion of the other two. That's been done. Federal vision, new perspective. Years ago, some of you you might cringe when I mention those words. Others of you are like, what is that? Um, Well, they they made that error, I think, as well as other men more uh, gifted and knowledgeable than myself in the faith. Also, we see here every church should have a preaching and teaching ministry as one of its greatest, most important ministries. Why? Because this is the means by which God saves men. Romans 10. We've already seen that. Here, He establishes His church through the preaching of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus had sent out the 70 70, to go and preach the Gospel. They come back to Him. And Jesus says this, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. 
Do you understand the connection that Jesus is making? As His servants, as men of God called by Him and recognized by the church, go out and preach the gospel and men come into His kingdom, Satan begins to fall like lightning from heaven. Remember, Paul has already said in verse 20, and the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. That will happen finally when we go to glory. But it begins here and now. And it begins through that process of gospel preaching. Let us not forget. In Revelation 12, verses 9 through 11, you see the, the dragon, that old serpent, the devil, he's cast out. And it says there, they, the saints, overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, by the person and work of Jesus, and by the word of their testimony. And so if Satan wanted to cripple the church today and paralyze the church today, what means and what event or act within the church would Satan attack? Preaching. He attacks in many ways. He divides churches, seeking to conquer them. Or maybe it's some fall of a preeminent pastor. Temptation overcomes and he falls into sin. There is a preaching ministry ruined. Or let's, let's try to be relevant and uh, come down and be worldly so that basically we're attracting people to worldliness, not the gospel and true holiness or conversion. You see, we have to be careful. And then another thing I would say here is that this means for you and me to be established. We need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is not to undermine obedience. Paul talks about the obedience of the nations here, part of the Great Commission. Jesus says, teach them to observe all the things that I've commanded. But it starts with the gospel. And even as aged Christians, we need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul says this establishes us. I mean, just think about it. What, what picture has Christ given to us that reminds us of the gospel? He's given us two. The sacraments. Baptism. That symbolizes the washing away of all of our sins. Our identifying with Christ. Becoming part of His family. His covenant community. But also in the Lord's Supper. Jesus says, do this in remembrance of Me. Jesus, Christian, wants you to remember Him. And what has He given? That you might remember Him. The Lord's Supper. What is the Lord's Supper? Bread and wine. What did they signify? His body, His blood. What does that signify? His death in your place. Paul says, I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. We need to know the Gospel. We need to hear the Gospel. We need to see Jesus on the pages of the Gospels continually in our Christian walk and life. It's important to the Savior and if it's important to Him, it should be important to us. He knows what we need. We'll come back to that at the end. And so Paul, he simply notes here that again, what he has been teaching in his letter to these Roman Christians is nothing new. If you look down at verse 25, uh, he says, according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began. So he's talking about the gospel. This gospel was a mystery. This 
mystery of the gospel was kept secret, he says, since the world began. But there is a process of revealing, a process of revelation, of making this mystery, this gospel known. Again, how does that happen? Through the preaching of the gospel. And uh, what Paul is doing here, he's using this word mysterion. It's a, kind of a technical term at times for Paul. It doesn't mean that the gospel is this mystery that you have to play the game of Clue to find it. It simply means that we would have not known it unless God had revealed it to us through His Word. And that's what he was doing throughout the Old Testament. Genesis 3.15, the first preaching of the gospel, the proto-euangelion. God says that the seed of the woman would come and crush the serpent's head. That's gospel. It's no pun intended in seed form. And so it's organically uh, revealed throughout the Old Testament. It starts in seed form. It grows. It sprouts. And so you get to Isaiah 53. And there's this servant of God, the suffering servant who will go like a lamb to the slaughter. And then in Malachi, it talks about this one who will prepare the way of the Lord. The Lord Himself will come down off the mountain. And that's Jesus. And John the Baptist, he preaches and he looks at Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So we have the fully revealed gospel of God by Christ Himself and His apostles recorded for us in the New Testament. And so remember, Paul, he's made the point that his gospel is nothing new. It was given to him by Christ, and he goes back time and again through this letter to the Romans to show that the gospel he preaches was in the Old Testament. He goes to Abraham, he goes to David, and quotes many scriptures throughout his letter. And so, he notes that this gospel is now made manifest in verse 26 by the prophetic Scriptures made known to all nations according to the commandment of the everlasting God. That's His calling as an apostle. And so this Gospel is to go to all the nations. To all the nations. We've already seen this. He mentions it again here in verse 26. You know, Jesus gave the Great Commission that great commission for us as the church is to make disciples of all nations. Jesus Himself in Mark 16, 15 says, Preach the gospel to whom? Every creature. Every creature. Let me just speak a word here about the nations, the Gentiles. As Paul mentions there in verse 6, 26, that it's made known to all nations according to the commandment for obedience to the faith, the Christian faith. Listen to what some godly men before us have said. R.L. Dabney, in the 1800s, he talks about the events that must occur before the second coming of Christ, and he speaks of one thing in particular. He says, the general triumph of Christianity over all false religions in all nations. That must happen. Jonathan Edwards, in his History of Redemption, said this would happen. He said, the visible kingdom of Satan shall be overthrown, and the kingdom of Christ set up on the ruins of it everywhere throughout the whole habitable globe. Now shall the promise made to Abraham be fulfilled that in him and in his seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And Christ 
now shall become the desire of all nations. Agreeable to Haggai 2.7. The Reformers in the Westminster Larger Catechism talking about the Lord's Prayer and that petition, Thy Kingdom Come, in answer 191, explain that petition, Thy Kingdom Come, in this way. When we pray that, they say, we pray that the kingdom of sin and Satan might be destroyed, the gospel propagated throughout the world, the Jews called the fullness of the Gentiles brought in, the church furnished with all gospel officers and ordinances, purged from corruption, countenanced and maintained by the civil magistrate. But what does the Bible say? That's the question, right? That's the authority. That's the inspired Word of God. Only the 72nd Psalm. Psalm 72. It talks about the reign of Jesus Christ which began at His first coming. And it says in Psalm 72 and verse 9, He, Jesus the Messiah, shall have dominion also from sea to sea, from the great river to the ends of the earth. His enemies shall lick the dust. In Romans 4.13, Paul said that Abraham would be heir of the world. And that includes Abraham's seed, Christ and his church. That's you and me. The meek shall inherit what? The earth. And so in Matthew 28.19 again, Jesus says, Make disciples of all the nations. Now let's just stop and let me say, I don't know exactly what's going on in the world today. God does. God's sovereign. Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth. Revelation 1.5 I do know that our borders here in this country are wide open. And I think, as some have said, there is an attempt to dilute whatever is left of Western civilization. A civilization built upon the principles of Christianity the Christian worldview. And obviously that is not so good. But I also know this, that the gospel of Jesus Christ is more powerful than any government, regime, or political power whatsoever. Christ said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's His promise. And we believe it by faith. I do know that the gospel has the power to transform sinners into saints, to raise spiritually dead men to life, to take a child of Satan and make him a child of the living God, and to transform the nations into the disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. God the Father, He looks in the second psalm, He looks down, He sees the resistance against Him. All the rulers, they conspire together. They take counsel together against the Lord, against His anointed, the Lord Jesus. And what does He do? He laughs. Psalm 2. Later in that psalm, God says to the Son, Ask of Me, and I shall give you the nations as your inheritance. Psalm 22, the promise there is that all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations shall worship before you 
For the kingdom is the Lord's, and He is the ruler of the nations. Isaiah 2, it says, In the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on top of the mountains, that's the church, and shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow to it. Could it be that the Lord is bringing the nations to His church in our day and time? And while the enemies of the church of Jesus Christ would see this as a means to weaken the church and her influence, maybe we ought to see this as an opportunity. I wouldn't put it past the Lord to use such uh, a tactic to confound the, quote, wise of the world and to exalt His name before the nations. He who sits in the heavens laughs. Sometimes I think God does have a sense of humor. Maybe He's saying, church, if you're not going to go out into the world, the world's going to come to you. And so we need to be ready to have the gospel on our hearts and then on our tongues so that we can speak in the name of Christ to the nations. And let me put it like this. Um, Erwin Lutzer wrote a book years ago, When a Nation Forgets God. And in that book, he talks about Nazi Germany. You know, the Nazi, they're, the Nazis are like the most evil people and Hitler's like Satan himself. So you can always go to them for an example. But this, this is sad, what I'm about to tell you. He writes about it. In Nazi Germany, the church at times turned their eyes from what was happening. He talks about how churches would hear the train coming. During their worship service, no doubt, the train would come full of Jewish prisoners headed to the concentration camps and the churches would sing louder so they, they did not have to hear the trains go by. So let us not do that. Let us be like those men of old who knew the times and knew what to do. We have the power of God. We have the gospel of God which is the power of God unto salvation. And so here's what we need to hear this morning. Even though the nations of the world dwell in darkness, they shall see a great light. Even though they be in rebellion and exalt themselves against the knowledge of God, they shall be humbled. Though they flee from Christ, they shall be subdued. One means that God uses to shine His light and humble and subdue the nations is through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so pray. Pray for all of the men who have the privilege, such as myself, of preaching the gospel officially in the public worship of God, representing Christ in that way. And pray that Christ would speak by His Spirit through such men. And pray for those Christians who are not ministers, but who are gifted to speak the gospel of Christ, that they would do so well. And pray for yourself if you're not as bold. 1 Peter 3.15 says of you and all of us who are Christians to be ready to have an answer, a reasoned defense for the hope that is within you. That's what we need today. And so pray for times of refreshing from the Spirit of Christ that our hearts, the church of Christ and her hearts would be revived again. Revive us again, O Lord. Well then last, quickly, 
We see all of this through the gospel and its glory. Look at verse 27. Perhaps you have a hyphen there, a dash. And it says, To God alone who is wise be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. Paul is guilty. Okay, teachers, Paul is guilty of run-on sentences. Sometimes we don't know where they end. Sometimes they just end at the end of his letter, it would seem. But he has one here in verse 25. He says, now to him who is able, and he keeps going on and on and on. And then finally, in verse 27, he, he picks it back up. Now to him who is able to God alone wise be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. This is a doxology, giving glory and praise to God. Now, how did Paul get to this point? Well, he got to this point through the gospel of Christ being applied to him, no doubt. But I'm talking about specifically here, why did he just erupt in praise to God and end his letter this way? It's because he is dealing with the gospel of Christ. It is the gospel of Christ that leads men and women and children to be worshipers of the living and true God. Remember the woman at the well? She worshipped other things. And then she had that encounter with Jesus. She left her water pot and went and told others about the one who was the Messiah. And Jesus in that conversation said, God is seeking such to worship Him. Those who would worship in spirit and in truth, not only according to the Word of God, but from a heart that is renewed by God. And so our worship is to be in accordance with God's Word, but also from a heart renewed by the Spirit of the living God. And Paul, in this letter, he's talked about all the the glorious aspects, facets of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. It's like this fine jewel that he holds up and it has all of these cuts and He turns it to this side and the light shines and it sparkles. And he sees God's justice, God's wrath, and then he turns it more. Then you see God's grace, God's mercy, and His sovereignty, and His love. And then you see His faithfulness to all of His promises. All of these are bound within God's revelation, His Word, and in particular, His Gospel, the Gospel of His Son. I remember, I've shared this, this with some of you, Years ago, I read a book called Chosen by God by R.C. Sproul. I didn't start reading much until I became a Christian. And I wanted to know. I would go around asking people, and they didn't know. And I didn't know I should have read my Bible, and I would have gotten answers. But I I needed to catch up, so I read good authors. And I read that book in one sitting. And for a new Christian, 19 years old, not a reader, that was no small task. And what did I do? got on my knees. And I thank God for choosing me before the foundation of the world. Why me? If you want to know what Reformed theology is about, that's it. It's about Jesus, the Gospel, His sovereignty, His mercy, with the backdrop of His justice. That leads you to praise the living God. How do you know when you start to worship the living God? It's when you're humbled. 
And when you step back and you say, why me? Then you can come before His throne. The throne of what? Grace. And get help in the time of need, even if you need help worshiping the living God. So do you know this God? Do you know the one that Paul has written about? The triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Lord Jesus Christ. Yesterday I was outside, I saw the beautiful sky with the clouds, and I thought, the same God who created all of this sent His Son to come down and to redeem it, to redeem me. And that motivates me to praise, and it will you too, if you bow to the Lord Jesus Christ. Old Scottish preacher talked about the expulsive power of a new affection. And that's what the gospel does. It it expels our idols from our hearts. And I use this term carefully. It allows God to come in to them so that we might worship Him. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We pray that as we go back and read Paul's letter, that we would see it with new eyes, with understanding, that we would grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, that Christ would be forever before us, that we would focus on Him. Because when we don't, we sink like Peter. But when we do, we may not walk on water, but we can walk on the mountaintop and we can walk through the valley. And so we praise You and we thank You for Christ, in whose name we do pray. Amen.